Good morning, CBC. Good morning, CBC. <laughs> How are y'all doing? Good morning. Um, I would like to read this scripture uh, from Jude, and I invite you to read with me uh, if, you, if you wish to do so, or you can just listen. Um, but we'll open with this starting at it's Jude 17. But you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, 
waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I ask that you would stand with me. We're going to sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Oh. 
Behold the Lamb. Behold. 
Good morning. Welcome to worship today at Cypress Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dave Munsinger. We're glad you're here in person, or if you're watching at home, we're glad that you are here. Cypress Bible Church is a church that um, gathers in life-changing worship. We grow in life-changing truth, and we go in life-changing missions. And no matter where you are, we want you to become more like Jesus. And so here's a few announcements for us as we look at our day of worship and our week. Um, this day, beginning at 11 o'clock, is our uh, CBC 101 class, and it meets just right behind that wall right there in the Java room, and uh, Pastor Brian Carroll leads that. It's a four-week class. It introduces you to our church. Um, it's, if you haven't gone through it, it's a great thing to go through to learn what we're all about and the people who uh, usually go through CBC 101, they often make a lot of great friends in there. So that's at 11 o'clock today in the Java Room. Also, if you have a preschool uh, squirrel, uh, the 11 o'clock class is closed today. So just FYI, if your squirrel is here, um, we will not be having the class. Well, I guess we're going to have a handful of nuts for them. Um, Beginning today also, in the back of the room are racks with bags on them for um, children's engagement during the service. So if you do have a child that uh, would like to have some um, age-appropriate um, materials during the worship service, just grab one of those bags and just put it back on the rack as you leave. Uh, there's activity pages in there, though, that they can keep. Also, uh, beginning is a bilingual grow group. Um, the Perezes will be leading that. If you are interested in participating in that, just let um, the kiosk know at the information desk or Brian Carroll, um, let them know that you would be interested in the bilingual grow group. Um, let us continue to worship.
it is to exalt, lift up the name of Jesus together to celebrate what he has done for us. I think that if uh, you are a baby boomer, you're probably going to remember the commercial that first appeared for Earth Day back in 1971. Uh, It is the image of Iron Eyes Cody wearing Native American garb, paddling a birch bark canoe on water that seems at first lovely, pristine, but then becomes increasingly polluted. He uh, pulls his boat ashore and walks through the trash on that shore toward a freeway that's packed with cars. And here are some stills from this commercial. Uh, A passenger hurls a paper bag out one of the car windows, and that bag bursts and scatters garbage all over Cody's moccasins. The camera then zooms in to, on his face and reveals this single tear falling ever so slowly down his cheek. The Chicago Tribune, just not too long ago, called this the most famous tear in American history. And the message of this commercial was, people start pollution, people can stop it. That commercial was all over television throughout the 70s. It was on billboards and in print ads. And it still is ranked as one of the best commercials of all time. I won't get into why the Tribune was writing about it, but uh, what I will tell you is that uh, Iron Eyes Cody was an actor, and the tear was not real. It was uh, just a drop of glycerin running down his face. I think a little bit more surprising piece of information that you might be aware of is that Although Iron Eyes Cody spent most of his life claiming to be a Cherokee, and although he played a Native American in over 200 movies and more than 100 TV shows, he was not. Iron Eyes Cody's real name was Aspera Oscar de Corti, and he was 100% Italian. Iron Eyes Cody died at age 94, still denying that he was at all Italian and still claiming he was Native American. Well, I just uh, was thinking about that and wondering, well, if the emotions and the participant are fake or phony, what happens to meaning? What happens to meaning? Our series that we are uh, in the seven parts, we're in week five of this called Acceptable Worship. And uh, this morning, we need to deal with that issue of honesty. The need for honesty in worship. 
there's a clear and present danger of false, phony, insincere acts of worship. It's something that Jesus warned very severely about. So this morning I want to take you to Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter, and show you a controversy that's brewing, that really this controversy that Jesus has with the the religious leaders is not at all relevant in any way to us today, that what they were squabbling about. But the point that Jesus makes is extremely relevant for you and for me when it comes to worship in particular. Jesus teaches worship must be honest for God to accept it. We we are looking at those things which God declares acceptable in worshiping Him. We're only going to scratch the surface of what Scripture declares. But this is one of those factors, honest, honest. So let's go to that controversy, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now I want you to appreciate that the conflict here was not really about hygiene. It's not a question of germs my wife as a preschool teacher has never been so happy as all the hand washing that happened in her class in the last year held things down uh, in, in a good way this is not about hygiene this is about ceremonial washing there were cleanliness laws that the nation of israel was required to keep so they could be acceptable to a holy god and if you touched a dead body If you came in contact with unclean people, unclean things, you needed to be purified. To be in the presence of of the perfect God, you must be clean. Now that principle is true. Jesus agreed with that. And yet some of Jesus' followers, some of his disciples, were not taking part in this cleansing ritual. And so there was this difference even between the disciples over this issue but the religious leaders were appalled so verse 5 the pharisees and teachers of the law asked jesus why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands now what i want you to notice is that the disciples were not violating scripture they were violating tradition they were going against tradition Uh, the, The word referred to something passed down from one generation to the next generation. These were ceremonies, these were instructions and practices that can be helpful, that the Jewish religious leaders had passed along, uh, all these lists of, of traditions and, and rules in order to protect God's law. That was their attempt. It's like, here's what God wants us to do, so let's make up all kinds of different little rules and, and traditions to help us keep God's law better. There were 613 regulations that were complex and burdensome and that went into great detail about the quantity of water that needed to be used, about the, the method of pouring and how you touched your hands and so on. So what some of the disciples were ignoring was not scripture, it was tradition. And so notice what Jesus, how he, Jesus responds, verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Now that might sound a little harsh to you, Jesus talking here 
Because after all, these people are concerned about how to be accepted by a holy God, about how to deal with their contamination. And Jesus denounces what they're doing as hypocrisy. Hypocrites. Uh, Hypocrites is used, that's the Greek word for hypocrite. It's used 20 times in the New Testament, all 20 of them by Jesus. So he's very serious about hypocrisy. He condemns it. And it, it refers to a play actor. It refers to someone who pretends to be what he or she is not. Someone who acts one way, but is another way. And so, really we could boil it down to saying hypocrisy makes worship worthless. It becomes vain, which is empty, powerless, Jesus says. So these religious leaders were more concerned about their own rituals and laws than they were God's. They were so busy keeping their own regulations that they let go of the truth. And so Jesus isn't disagreeing that sinful people need to be cleansed in order to approach holy God. Jesus is disagreeing with the source of the uncleanliness uncleanliness, and how to deal with it. So that's important for us to hear. Verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Now this is key to understanding uh, all of what Jesus says here. And one of the favorite things that I played with as a kid was Play-Doh. To get some Play-Doh, and sometimes we had to make our own Play-Doh, but that's a whole other story. When it's Play-Doh, I love the smell of it. I still like the smell of Play-Doh. Um, and one time, my Aunt Bet gave me a gift of some Play-Doh. I guess the three or four colors of Play-Doh. And um, after I played with it a little bit, she should, suggested that we make cookies from the Play-Doh. Uh, well, cookies sounds good. Um, interesting. Once we'd used that dough to make two dozen very colorful cookies, she said, and I quote, let's bake them. Now, I'm a little kid, and I think, well, maybe if you put things in the oven, magic happens. And I, I can't remember ever turning down a cookie in my life, so I thought this was good. Uh, when they came out of the oven, I asked, how long do I have to wait before I can eat some? And that was when I found out that they weren't for eating, but they were for looking at my Aunt Bet. Now I no longer liked Aunt Bet. <laughs> what a horrible ripoff. Not only didn't I have cookies, I didn't even have Play-Doh anymore. So understand that when you start with Play-Doh, it doesn't matter how good the cookies look. Appearance is less important than the ingredients. So let me put it this way. Whatever worship looks like on the outside is not as important as what's on the inside. That's what Jesus is saying. So the religious leaders had created traditions to deal with their sin from the outside in. Their thought was, clean up the exterior and all will be well. Carry out this ritual and the stain will be removed. And the problem was that these things could be carried out physically, and not involve the heart at all. That's what Jesus was judging them on. Uh, You and I are not made spiritually impure by what does or doesn't happen on the outside. And this puzzled the disciples. So later on, Jesus explained it more fully. Verse 21, For from within, 
out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now Jesus is very clear about the human condition. That we are fundamentally flawed inside. That we're not just a little bit off. We are depraved and broken on the inside. And Jesus lists a bunch of things here that come out of us. Wrong thinking, angry words, sexual sin, jealousy, gossip, insensitivity, selfishness, overindulgence, and so on. So what is the source of evil in our world? The Republicans say it's the Democrats. The Democrats say it's the Republicans. The rich say it's the poor. The poor say it's the rich. The NRA blames the ACLU, and the ACLU blames the NRA. One nation blames another nation. One religion blames other religions. But all of that blame only denies the spiritual reality that Jesus tells us, the real problem. Alexander Solzhenitsyn discovered this very truth and said in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, he said this, if only it were so simple as separating evil people from the rest of us and destroying them. Now, if that was how easy it would be. And then, then he said this, the line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. That is exactly the teaching of Jesus. That's what Jesus declares here. The source of evil comes from within us. We are what's wrong. I am what's wrong. I'm unclean on the inside, and that's what spills out. And the reason that Jesus rebuked the religious leaders is because they were trying to solve this problem from the outside in. And that's, we try to deal with our uncleanness in the same way. Jesus says you're fatally flawed from within. And, and what do we do? We try to deal with our uncleanness from the outside in, through external measures. So how do we do that? Let me give you three examples. Here are ways that we try to deal externally with what really is an internal problem. One is we try to make ourselves clean through success. Uh, we think this way, if I can achieve enough, if I can win enough, if I can save enough, if I can work hard enough, if I can impress enough people, then I'll feel accepted, then I'll be worthy, then I'll feel clean, then I'll be valuable. And so you pour yourself into your career or your degree or your sport or your community group or your ministry or your hobby or your musical talent or your business, and what does all that effort accomplish? When you achieve, when you succeed, will it cleanse you? Will it make you whole and worthy? It will not. The uh, U.S. Open Tennis Championship just ended or, for the women yesterday. Uh, if you aren't a tennis fan, let me just tell you, two teenage girls battled it out for the women's championship. It was, it was historic. It was uh, amazing to watch. Earlier in that tournament, Naomi Osaka uh, got bumped out. Uh, Naomi says something is wrong with her. Here's this tennis star who has won four Grand Slam championships. In 2020, she was Sports Illustrated's Sports Person of the Year. 
But recently she struggled. And last week after losing in an early round, she said this, when I win, I don't feel happy. I feel more like a relief. And when I lose, I feel very sad. And I don't think that's normal. So Naomi is experiencing what is a reality and that we can't make ourselves clean through success. Success is an outside-in approach, and it doesn't work. A second example is family. Family might be a way that you try to solve your sense of uncleanness, your sense of self-worth. So you have children. And for some, that in itself becomes a, a huge problem because you can't have children, and infertility causes you to question your value. But if you have children, you might invest everything in them. And you want them to have it better than you had it. And so you provide them with as much as possible. You express love to them. Sacrifice for them. You want them to have all of your best qualities and none of those bad qualities from your spouse. You don't want that at all. But no matter how much you give, no matter how much you do, if you're honest you realize that my kids still have flaws and failures. And even if you give them the world, it doesn't change their heart. And surrounding yourself with children who mean the world to you doesn't change your heart. That's an outside-in approach, and it fails. The third example I get from uh, Tim Keller, and it's about religion or morality. And the thought that pornography and bad people, and if I pray and read my Bible and if I try really hard to be good, then God will see that I'm worthy and he will heal my heart. And the problem is that just as Jesus said, that model doesn't stick because you never feel good enough. Uh, though you're praying, though you're trying your hardest to be good, your heart doesn't change. You're never filled with love and joy and security you're actually more anxious because when, when something goes wrong in your life you'll immediately be thrown into doubt i see this all the time sadly as a pastor someone who's living a religious life and then when something goes wrong they say why did god let this happen i thought i was living a good enough life and they bail religion doesn't get rid of the self-justification, the self-centeredness, the self-absorption at all. It doesn't strengthen or change the heart. It's an outside-in approach. So trying to cover our uncleanness by any outward act doesn't work. As the Lord declares in Jeremiah 2.22, although you use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. There's nothing you can do on the outside to cleanse yourself. And that's the point of this text, nothing external can deal with the problem of the human heart. And so what Jesus emphasized to the crowd, he wants us to hear today. And God the Father, out of his great love, sent his only son to deal with our uncleanness, our sin problem. To make it possible for unclean people to come into a relationship with the one who is utterly perfect the sinless jesus took the sin of the world on himself and was slaughtered on the cross his sacrifice made possible our holiness so that by that one sacrifice all who put their trust in him 
are made clean. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of my favorite verses. The bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that can cleanse your sinful heart. And so just to say that in Christ alone, Are you freed from your external attempts to purify yourself, become worthy, or gain approval? Only Jesus can do that. He makes us righteous from the inside out. That's the only basis by which you can acceptably worship God. He can cleanse you so that at all times and in every place you're able to connect with God. You can do that at your job. You're working hard and you're doing your best. Not so that you can improve your self-worth, but as an act of worship the God who saved you. As you hang out with your friends and you're kind and joyful and caring, not so that they'll validate you and give you their approval, but because how you treat others flows from a heart who is worshiping the Almighty God. And as you serve and as you volunteer and you do good things and give yourself to help others, it's not so God will look upon you with favor and accept you. It's not to please people or to win their approval. Your service flows from a heart that's eager to honor the Lord, your Redeemer. And when you gather for worship, you're not doing for, but praise and thanks and, and just an awe flow from your heart that has been changed by the rescuing Savior. So Jesus accused these religious leaders of nullifying the Word of God by their tradition. That's how dangerous tradition can become. It can nullify God's Word if we're not careful. Because they'd elevated religious customs and practices on par with Scripture, and Jesus called them out. They got offended. Matthew in his Gospel says they got offended by this, and that's understandable. We're threatened whenever our, our way of making ourselves feel valuable and cleansed and, and whole is challenged. But since... Acceptable worship happens from the inside out. We must always make sure that what we're passionate about is the truth of God and not simply tradition. Now, if God didn't command it, whatever tradition it is, isn't as important as something God did command. Let let me just share with you four external things that can get mistaken for worship. And I want you to do a little self-evaluation because these are things that we can mistake for worship in our lives. Let me go through them quickly nostalgia that's when we do things the way they've always been done back in the good old days this need for the familiar to connect with god can be confused with true worship and this is one reason why people think you know i can't worship if i don't sit in that spot or i can't worship if i don't know the songs that's nostalgia it's a it's a warm sentiment that brings comfort in an ever-changing world but that feeling is not worship and there's no resulting impact on whole of life. And, and if that's your criteria for worship, it, it's, it's empty. Next is novelty, and that's, like, that's the other end of the spectrum. That's when it's not old familiar memories that you look for, it's new things to keep you interested, to keep you excited. So you want to experience the novel teaching, which usually is bad. You want the the song the the unique way of praying the fresh way of doing things but this longing for different and innovative can't be confused with worship it's empty noise meaning that you might require high decibels to raise your sense of excitement and to drown out the sound of your guilt and shame or you might crave the quiet 
low levels of sound to soothe your soul and to keep your spirit undisturbed and to silence your doubts and fears. But that's just an external thing that is empty. Not worship. Need. You look for worship to make you feel better. To address your issues, your pain, your loneliness, your neediness. That's what matters most to you. And if you feel less guilty, if you feel more holy, if you feel more joyful, then that makes it real. But that's human-centered. It's a me-focused approach, and it's empty. It's vain. Empty worship is about externals. Those are some examples. Jesus is about what's inside. Empty worship changes appearances. Jesus changes the heart. And so I return to my definition of worship that we're working with here, that worship is when I respond to truth about God by giving back to Him. So how do I know when I'm worshiping from the inside out and not the outside in? How do I know? Well, I think it's wrapped up in how you respond and why you respond. Because worship involves giving back with action, with emotion, with attention. And so the question is, are you moved to do something, to think something, to feel something as you worship Almighty God? It might be praise or service or confession or awe and wonder or sacrifice or obedience. There are countless ways to respond to God. But if you don't respond by giving back, you're not worshiping. That's the how. But the why is more important. Why? If that why you are worshiping is not in response to truth about God, it is not worship. Now, there are, I could spend uh, an hour criticizing, poking holes in, denigrating different songs and hymns and spiritual songs and their lyrics and so forth. I'm not going to do that, but I just want to give you an example or two here. Because there are familiar hymns, popular songs, that aren't worship because they don't point to truth about God. And we try to avoid those kinds of things. But the next time your emotions are stirred, the next time your mind is engaged, you're moved to action, make sure it's because of a truth about God. So let me give you an example. I uh, uh, watched a, a service July 4th, and that service, which was a Sunday, that service included a song that is in, I think, every hymnal that I've ever seen for the last 100 years, My Country Tis of Thee. It's in our hymnal. We don't have them out there anymore, but My Country Tis of Thee. Look at the words of that song. That is not about God. The first three verses are worship of our country, of its geography. Verse 4, a little bit about God. But it, it's uh, as beautiful music. Uh, the words are beautiful. But it's not truth about God. It doesn't belong in a worship service. One of many examples. Um, another example is a, an article that it's worth Googling if you're interested. It's because it's out there. It's in the Nashville scene. It was written several years ago by Casey Black. It's, uh, I think it's titled something like How Horrible uh, Christian Music Made Me Leave Christianity. Something of that nature. So here's, here's Casey Black's experience. Uh, he, he lives in Nashville. He's a songwriter. His girlfriend's a country singer. 
They were attending church. All around them, people are raising their hands and closing their eyes and singing to God. And Casey came into that service severely depressed, he said. But he felt that if he joined in with this, raised his hands, closed his eyes, sang loud enough, he might meet God and find relief from his sadness. So right there you see his motivation is a little bit need-based, right? A few songs in, he says the singer stopped and said that the band had written a new song that was special. And Casey said, you know, and listening to it, it seemed like a typical worship song to me, and after multiple repetitions of the chorus, everyone was back to the routine of singing with their hands raised and eyes closed. He said, for a chorus or two, I was hanging in there, trying to worship my Creator as best I could, but then I stopped. Something bugged me. Here's verse 1. Let our song be like sweet incense to your heart, O God. He said, that's an awful lyric. Songwriter than I am, I had to take this apart. Everybody else is singing, but I'm looking at it. Let our song, which is a sound, be like sweet incense, which is a smell, to your heart, which is an organ that can neither hear nor smell, he says. So I knew I was being harsh on the writer, but come on, this is garbage, he said. This is throwaway stuff. And I looked around to see if anybody else was, might feel the same way, because we're in the songwriting capital of the world, Casey says. But what I saw were hundreds of my peers with closed eyes and raised hands singing this absolute nonsensical lyric. And it was then that I felt the opening of my first true conscious schism with religion and with my religious self. And it scared me. This is dangerous. These people are singing words that literally make no sense. And they're offering this nonsense directly at God. How could they not think before they sing, he said. Doesn't God deserve better? On the way home, my girlfriend, again, this is Casey, all right? Uh, My girlfriend told me I was missing the point. The point, she said, isn't really the lyric of the song, but how you feel when you sing it. If you feel good, if you feel like the song brings you closer to God, if you're praising God with the song, then it isn't really important if the lyrics make sense or not. God sees your intentions and blesses you. Casey said, that frightened me. He recognized outside-in worship, and it turned him from God. Now, if we don't know what we're singing, or if we don't mean what we're singing, we're hypocrites. Our God deserves praise from the depths of our heart. We're going to close this service this morning with oh for a thousand tongues to sing. And as we say those words, could you just grasp for a moment, instead of imagining, oh, if I only had a thousand tongues, to use the one tongue you do have to praise the God of the universe from your heart. Are you one who has been made whole by the sacrifice of Christ? If you have been redeemed by His blood, then you with me have a whole heart to give God. Are our motives mixed at times? Yes. Do we fail at times? Absolutely. Do we need to confess and ask forgiveness? Yes, yes, yes. But thanks be to God, we have a Savior who has made us children of the Almighty God. So stand with me and let's sing together praise to the one who deserves it, for He is worthy. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories 
service as we began it with these words from Jude. Receive this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.